News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. A big public safety announcement made by Premier David Eby late yesterday. We will kind of break down everything behind it. Uh, why so late in the day? What was going on with Von Palmer coming up just after the 6.30 news? But first, let's break down actually what was announced We heard that there will be $230 million in funding allocated for the RCMP. It will be spread out over the next three years. And this money is to go towards filling staffing vacancies and increasing staffing at specialized units. Here's Premier Eby. Today I'm announcing another step forward on enforcement. For the first time, British Columbia is committing to sustained core funding for the RCMP. The RCMP will receive $230 million over three years. The new funding will help keep our streets safer for everyone by supporting the RCMP to operate at full strength, which is just over 2,600 officers. Right now, staffing vacancies and service level reductions are affecting law enforcement in British Columbia. This impacts the safety of officers and the public. Once fully staffed up, Police will be able to provide better service in all parts of the province. It will also free up members to work on specialized teams that investigate and prevent complex violent and organized crimes. Additionally, there will be more support for prosecutors and probation officers managing violent high-risk offenders. Stable and sustained core funding for the RCMP is a key part of our Safer Communities Action Plan. It allows us to act on priorities like hiring additional officers in specialized units, such as the Major Crime Section, the Sexual Exploitation of Children Unit, and the BC Highway Patrol. These units serve urban and rural communities across the province and can help alleviate some work of municipal police forces, freeing them up to focus on other crimes. In order to address public safety concerns head-on, there need to be adequate staffing resources. In addition to the $230 million over three years, the Safer Communities Action Plan also includes launching new repeat violent offender coordinated response teams made up of police and dedicated prosecutors and probation officers, expanding mental health crisis response teams into more communities so the police can focus on crime and people in crisis are met early on by healthcare workers and community members building public confidence in the prosecution system with new direction from the Attorney General, new direction to implement a clear and understandable approach to bail for repeat violent offenders within the existing federal law. Okay, that is Premier David Eby making that announcement. I mean, it all sounds good, right? My question on this, though, is what took so long? Because many of these vacancies in the RCMP have actually been sitting empty for quite a while. Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth was with the Premier to make that announcement, and he was actually asked that about how many vacancies there are right now. We have 277 what we would call blocked vacancies. This funding will allow those vacancies to be filled. Uh, We will be working with Public Safety Canada uh, and E-Division in terms of the the recruitment and the uh, the filling of those vacancies. Uh, That's why it's a a three-year plan. Uh, the, uh, the RCMP depot, the typical troop goes through for anywhere from 28 to 36. Uh, with what we are, we, what we are announcing today, we expect that each of those, those, uh, troops will be 36 that make their way through depot. Uh, I think it's about 40 a year that they, that they, they put through. 
Um, we have already uh, um, been in discussions with uh, the RCMP. I've raised the issue of recruitment with Public Safety Canada. And one of the critical things in, in being able to fill those positions is having that money there, is having that commitment from the province to fund those positions. And that's what's happening. Okay, that's the thing, though. These vacancies didn't happen overnight, and they're not going to get filled overnight now, that even though the funding is available there. So there will be a delay. question is, and what took so long to move forward and fill these vacancies. Now, besides the vacancies, as mentioned, there are also going to be some new positions, increased staffing at specialized units, including those dealing with money laundering. Now, on that particular issue, Global News spoke to Jeffrey Simpson, an anti-money laundering lawyer, we'll get his thoughts about this whole announcement. He makes recommendations that any investigation by a police force that includes any kind of unlawful activity for profit, whether that's drugs, fraud, kleptocracy, whatever it is, that it in- should include a proceeds of crime investigation. That is just not happening. Right. So with the staffing, then, it is hoped that some of this increased crackdown potentially on money laundering will be able to happen. So obviously lots of questions about this, where this is going to go, where is this money coming from, and also what did take so long. This is Mornings with Simi. Time now for us to check in with Raji Sohal. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. So today I wanted to talk to you about this a trend that's becoming more and more popular on TikTok and very popular amongst the elderly in China. So more than half of China's older population, that's over 60, is online. And increasingly, they are turning to social media to post themselves. So not just to post, uh, or rather not just to consume other people's content, but they're making their own content. And it's this new generation of retirees who actually have fewer grandchildren than people before, and in some cases don't have grandchildren. And they just want to peruse uh, the, the the same thing that young people want to do on social media, and they want to pursue hobbies and share their experiences online. And the images and the videos coming out of there are just they're awesome. So like older people, I'm talking, you know, 65, 70, 80s. I saw some of some people that are in their 90s where they're playing instruments, where they're uh, getting dolled up, getting uh, glamorous, even coordinating outfits with their friends and posting this like really well produced content, it's like this wave of uh, older social media influencers. I love the wrapping grannies. I was checking this out. I was reading through this story on the weekend and I thought, this looks so funny. The wrapping grannies, that's what they call themselves. We're not, we're not saying that. Uh, But I love to see this happening there. But I do wonder, you know, how sometimes kids are always, they're embarrassed by their parents and they're embarrassed by their grandparents. I'm wondering how their kids feel. I'm wondering how their family members feel about seeing this because this is a radical change. Oh, it's such a radical change. You know, I myself, uh, I'm of two minds about this trend. Because like on the one hand, I'm happy to see people who are for the most part, they're erased normally from public imagery, right? Like older people are ignored in advertising and marketing. They are not up front. And so I feel like this is great because why shouldn't we see people age, right? Our society is uh, bizarre to pretend that only young people matter and young people have the most fun. Okay, then on the other hand, 
I don't want to see older people become obsessed with their appearance. I feel like at some point in your life, like hopefully when you're above 60, you can just, that you deserve the right to just accept how you look at that point and not get dolled up in designer clothes and, and maybe they want to. Cause like I, I saw some of these pictures too and I thought, okay, that's nice that they're still into it. They love it. They're doing it. It just, I guess it just depends on finding that your joy as you get older, right? And this, if it's different from what people were doing before, well, good on you. Yeah. And I think some of them don't want to be left behind. They see how much social media and influencers are part of people's lives now. And, and why shouldn't, why should they be left behind by, by any account? But there are so many big accounts out there, you know, outside of China as well, just everywhere, uh, where they are basically tutorial videos for older people to look younger. So it's like tutorials on how to disguise your age. And this, I feel, is the com- complete opposite in a way in that these people are just really celebrating where they are in life. And in many cases, celebrating that they don't have grandchildren to take care of, that they can just live out their dreams. And I think that that, that does sound really radically different than previous generations, right? Grandma in the kitchen with the grandkids. and Let me ask you this, Raji. How would you feel if your parents uh, suddenly were very, very active on Facebook and started, you know, on TikTok and started posting videos and stuff? How would you feel if your parents did that? Uh, they already do. But I don't like it. <laughs> my parents were on TikTok before me. Simi, my parents are currently globetrotting. I'm like, slow down. You guys are acting like a pair of teenagers. They're not updating us enough on where they're going and what they're up to. And they're posting all these pics and videos of them and their friends uh, all around the world. Uh, No, my parents are already doing this. This is not what I thought retirement was going to look like for them. Uh, No, that is what retirement is. Let me tell you, Um, (laughs) we took our first trip this year because like we're at that point where almost empty nesters. First trip this year with just us without the kids. And boy, were they upset about it. Like they do. So I get what you're saying because I've heard that from my own kids. They do not like it when parents turns out are developing a life without them. Sure. And also putting that life online, uh, because I try to keep pretty private with my life online. And then my folks are like, oh, look at this video of us hanging by the pool. Or we just (laughs) rented these bikes and did this and that. And I'm like, slow down, folks. (laughs) That is too funny. Also, I think parents, it's it's awkward, right? You're like, what are my parents doing on social media all the time? So there will be that fine balance. But you know what? Maybe social media isn't necessarily meant for the young people. I also wonder what the future of social media is. Like this is social media is kind of we're all living out our lives online to a great extent. And we assume it's only going to become increasingly the case, but it might at some point go the other way. We might have people like, you know, today I'm I'm noticing that friends uh, with huge accounts of followers on Twitter are pulling their accounts and they're not bothered either. So who knows? We'll see what the future holds for us. Well, I'm fascinated by this. I'm fascinated by as you get older, you know, people who dive right into these kinds of new adventures and because the the temptation is to just be like, no, I like what I like. And I'm kind of one of those people, right? That I like what I like. And I don't know if I want to get into this, but gosh, it's so great to see people trying out new things. Raji, thank you. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about another, you know, incident involving guns and shooting that, you know, has people talking 
And it feels like we've had so many of these recently. We know we're still trying to figure out what's going on in Merritt. We hope to get more information there from police today. There was, of course, the horrific incident that unfolded along Highway 1 earlier this week. Uh, we got more details on that yesterday, including hearing from the car dealership where all of it originated. There was an armed robbery there, uh, and that led to the events that everybody saw kind of unfold along Highway 1 there. Uh, and then... We hear about this. This is a shooting that happened last night. It was a, It's a triple shooting, it sounds like. So three people were shot. Two people have been killed as a result of this shooting. And now the Integrated Homicide Investigation Team has been called in to take over the case on this. So there's a lot, obviously, going on here. Lots of questions about this, particularly if you live in that area. So let's find out more. Emily Lazadin is with us now, our Global News CKNW reporter on the scene this morning. Good morning, Emily. Good morning, Simi. Um, wow, this, uh, oddly enough, I used to live in this neighborhood. So um, it, it's a quiet neighborhood, Dawes Hill, Monday Street. Um, I'm parked right across from where it all happened last night. So it, it's right where, if, if, if our listeners know the area, there's Dawes Hill Park. And at the edge of the park, there's a back alley. So that is all taped off right now. And at the edge of the park, um, and the car is gone, but the two bodies, uh, it was a double homicide. So two bodies were found inside this vehicle at the edge of Dawes Hill Park. Behind the police tapes, I mean, there's also a black pickup truck. However, we do not know yet how that black pickup truck is linked to this double homicide. Um, and, and this all happened at 7.45 last night. It was a frantic, chaotic scene. There is video emerging of uh, first responders giving CPR to uh, uh, one of the victims. We don't know which one. Um, now, a third victim, Simi, is in hospital recovering from gunshot wounds. So th- there's, still, there's still shattered glass uh, on the road uh, in a few spots here. And uh, IHIT has now taken over the investigation. But it's been a violent 48 hours here in Coquitlam, for sure. I was just thinking that, too, that people in that area must be pretty shaken up with what is happening there. Um, And so was there any reports of anything prior to these 911 calls of the of the possible shooting going on? Or or did that just kind of come out of the blue? Well, we got we started getting emails into the newsroom yesterday from people in the area saying what's going on. Uh, They heard at least 10 gunshots. And um, I, again, if anybody has seen any of these videos emerging, you know, there's the, pic- there's the pictures and the visuals of the car with shattered uh, front windows. Um, I spoke to a, a neighbor right across from Dawes Hill Park this morning who said he heard the gunshots as well. And it, he thought it was fireworks because there were that many going off um, at the same time. Uh, and then he came out to see a vehicle right in front of his home um, with blown out windows. So, uh, wow. Okay. What? Any idea what Emily might they might they might have an update on this? I've reached out. So um, Coquillam RCMP sent out the original um, press release yesterday. This morning we were notified IHIT has taken over. So we, we have reached out to IHIT for more information. And, uh, yeah, we are hoping for for as much detail as we can get. Again, uh, the details around this are always, is, was it tar- targeted? Is it isolated? Is it, you know, it's gang-related? Is it related to the Lower lower Mainland gang conflict? So all those questions um, we're waiting waiting answers for. Oh boy, okay. It's been uh, very busy and I'm sure residents out that way uh, feeling pretty jumpy about all this right now. Emily, thank you so much for the update. 
All right. Have a good one, Jimmy. Yeah, appreciate that. Emily Lazatin, our Global News CKNW reporter, who was just there across the street, she said, from Dawes Hill Park, uh, where this happened about 745 last night, police receiving multiple 911 calls about a possible shooting. And so all we know at this point, two people have been killed. One person is in hospital with non-life-threatening injuries, they believe. But, of course, lots of investigation going on here. And as Emily pointed out, the Integrated Homicide Investigation Team has been called in to take over the case. And now we talk about that area kind of being shaken up, residents who live there. And that's because that's the second time this week uh, that they are you know, hearing and seeing about this kind of major uh, crime-related event happening in their community. Earlier this week, it was just Tuesday that we heard about the other uh, event that the police are even terming a highly violent event. And yes, we saw the evidence of that. Two suspects, by the way, still at large in that one. And that is a big concern for people. Two suspects who are known to police are in custody. That's what we know in that particular situation. This is Mornings with Simi. Is the money getting where it needs to go? There's an annual report from our Auditor General that says the province is owed millions by people who received but were ineligible for COVID-19 relief grants. Now, the report also says that the government's going to spend billions on recent weather-related disasters. Let's talk more about this in detail now. Michael Pickup joins us now, BC's Auditor General. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Let, let's start with the COVID-19 relief grants. So how, how did this happen? Who got them that wasn't supposed to receive them? Yeah, sure. And uh, and this is some of the wonderful information that comes in these uh, in financial reports is on the BC emergency benefit for workers, that was at $643 million paid to 643,000 people. Um, as of June of, of this summer, there was about 10,500 recipients that were found to be ineligible. And they're going to have to repay some $10.5 million. That's a lot of money. It, yeah, it is a lot of money. And, um, and of course, you know, in, in fairness to the government, they were trying to get money uh, quickly out the door. And, um, and you know, they did manage to do that. But, of course, um, that meant some money went to some people who uh, were not, not eligible. And they'll have to work to recover that now. Okay, so is that something that you will also monitor, though, to see what it's like trying to get that money back? Uh, absolutely, and uh, that's why we put it on our sort of one-page summary, if you will, in the audit at a glance. So we'll follow up again next year um, as part of this year's audit and report back on it next year to say, hey, hey, what happened with that money that you were you were going to try and recover from people? Did you get it back? All right, we'll see what happens with that. Now, let's talk about the weather-related uh, funding as well, because this is always a very big deal, Michael, that when there's some kind of weather-related incident, people look for help from the government. So uh, is the government reaching those people? Well, what we what we tried to show here is something that uh, good information that is in the financial statements and the government records. It's just the magnitude and the size and cost of these disasters. So one of the things we highlighted was that you know, in 2021 alone, um, you know, the, the weather-related disasters, the costs were estimated at over $5 billion by government. That was more than the previous 19 years in total combined. So just massive amount of numbers. No problem with the accounting. The accounting is correct. But again, it's just highlighting for people. And, um, you know, there's a lot of money sitting in, uh, sitting in receivable from the government of Canada that the province is waiting to get back as well. Okay, now that's a pretty serious thing. To, you want to make sure you get this right because people need that money to get their lives back on track. 
Yeah, yeah. And, and the reason why we're highlighting it here is not to be problematic or not to say there's issue with the accounting, but just to say, you know, this is a significant area uh, for the government now. Uh, nobody would have imagined 20 years ago that the government would be, you know, spending five plus billion dollars uh, in a year on issues. So it's the importance of having, you know, good systems of control in place, having good accounting and being able to be able to handle uh, this amount of uh, money processing, if you will, uh, in many ways, right? Getting money back from the federal government, getting the money out the door to people who, who need the money as well. So massive, massive uh, change um, in, you know, where the government spends its time and energies over the last 20 years. That's actually a really good point. So because we keep hearing about how all these kinds of events are going to happen more because of climate change. So do we need a better overall system then, Michael, for how that money flows and how it all works? Yeah, yeah. So, so again, I think it's it's just to highlight no no issues with the accounting. The government is able to account for this, but again, it's it's for the government to keep an eye on you know having the infrastructure internally in place, if you will, having the controls in place, having the people in place to be able to recognize, you know, when when you have to look after this amount of money, it, it takes um, systems, it takes people uh, to be able to do this, and. Unfortunately, this area of expenditure is probably not going away, right? If anything, we've seen in terms of the things that have happened um, that the government needs to be able to handle uh, doing this type of work. So that's why we highlighted it again. It's not to, not to take issue with it. Uh, it is just to draw attention for everybody's sake, um, you know, the useful information that is in these financial reports. Right, and there's always something that you like to point out and highlight too, that there's kind of a fundamental difference between how you look at revenue and how the government looks at revenue. Yeah, yeah, and that's just that's just one of the accounting issues we have. We have issue, you know, overall the government, the financial statements are fair, except three three key areas that we have, and uh, one of them is is on revenue and the recording of revenue where we think it keeps accumulating over years. So this is an issue that's been going on the last you know ten plus years, and now it's sitting at um, six point four eight billion dollars. That essentially is sitting in an account. But if you look at the government's financial statements, you would think that they owe that money to somebody because it's sitting there as a liability. But in fact, they don't. Right? They they have received that money. They have used it, and they should be uh, recognizing it yearly as they go, rather than having having it sit in a liability. I always make the comparable. You know, if you're lucky enough to have your mortgage paid off. Um, and don't owe any money on your house, um, you're probably not going to record a liability on your personal balance sheet right, because but- you've done what you've had to to get rid of that. So so that's a comparable that I would make on that one. But th- I know we've heard this before. You're, you're like the fourth Auditor General in BC who has brought this up. Why can't we get this changed? Why can't those things be coordinated? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, this is why, why I'm trying to make a big deal about it for people. It, it's you know, and I've met with the minister on this and, and asked the minister to change this. If this was, you know, the auditor of a bank or a Canadian Tire or Home Depot, you know, the external auditor going to the board of directors and saying, you know, the accounting that the, the preparers are doing here is wrong. We think you should change this. That would probably be addressed in the private sector. But here in the public sector, here in the government, that has not happened. Um, so I'm hoping that the minister and the government will relook at this, listen to their external auditor, listen to me, uh, who is the one mandated to give that external opinion, and say, yeah, you know, we have something here to fix up, three issues now to fix up. So I'm hoping that, that they will take some action. Oh, I hope so, too. Uh, Michael, thanks so much for that. Oh, thank you. Thank you for your interest, and uh, have a great day. 
This is Mornings with Simi. If you needed a potentially life-saving drug, but it wasn't available to you, wouldn't you want to know why that is? I mean, the drug is there. You can get it, but the government's just not going to cover it for you. That is so incredibly challenging. Well, two BC doctors are actually calling for greater access to some potentially life-saving drugs that are only covered in public health care under certain circumstances. Let's find out more about this. Dr. Tom Elliott is with us now, a Vancouver endocrinologist who specializes in diabetes research. Dr. Elliott, good morning. Good morning, Simi. Okay, now I know you've been doing a lot of work in this area, but is there, has there been quite a few breakthroughs when it comes to treating diabetes with new drugs? Yes, there has. Uh, the last few years have seen what I call the diabetes revolution. Uh, we've got devices, but we're talking about drugs this morning, and there are two classes of drug that are wonderful for diabetes. They not only lower sugar, which is what we want for high sugar, but they lower weight, and overweight is a big problem in diabetes. And not only that, they reduce cardiovascular risk. They reduce the risk of heart attack, stroke, and kidney failure. So these drugs are available. The only problem is they're expensive. And as you alluded, not everybody's got deep pockets. So we rely on pharmacare to subsidize these drugs for us. Okay, so then how do you decide who is able to get these drugs? Like, do you have to, is it a matter of who can afford them? Well... (laughs) Ultimately, right now it is because the government is putting major obstacles in the path to me prescribing these life-saving, life-changing drugs. They require that I prescribe a dangerous drug. The drug is called is in the sulfonylurea group. It's either glyduride and or glycoside. These drugs can cause severe low sugar, passing out lows or worse. And I refuse to prescribe these drugs. And because of that, the avenues for me to get the government approval are limited. So the government keeps upping the ante, and I do too, but however, the government just will not approve the use of these life-saving, game-changing drugs. And the, the, the drugs are empagliflozin or jodiance, which is a pill, and semaglutide or ozempic, which is a once-a-week shot. These drugs have made a huge difference to how I practice diabetes. Way more of my patients get to target. They lose weight. They feel good about themselves. Um, As you know, in some cultures, there's shame around diabetes. Well, that's all. That shouldn't be the case. Diabetes is a condition, not a disease. And, And we know with access to these drugs that the vast majority of my patients and your listeners who have diabetes will get to target and will feel good about it. How much of a price difference are we talking about here, Dr. Elliott? Like, how expensive are these drugs? Well, the, 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 the Empagliflozin and Jodiance pill is about $2.80 a day, and the semaglutide or Ozempic shot is $7 a day. So they're, you know, they're orders of magnitude higher than the cheap but dangerous drug the government wants me to prescribe. So, you know, Glyderide and Picazide is 20 or 40 cents a day. So they're way more expensive, but... But, but they're safer. Simi, you know, it, in good conscience, I could not prescribe glycoside or glyduride to my patients. It would endanger them. Um, you know, I've seen uh, one death because of these drugs. A, a person had a low sugar, uh, went driving and killed another motorist. And I've seen untold 
passing out lies or confusion lies for patients on these drugs. So it's just not safe. And and in our you know in our society we we value safety first. Right. Plus there are all these added benefits of reducing heart attack and stroke and and weight. That's what I was wondering. Like, is there not a cost benefit? Uh, like spending a little more now for a cost benefit to the system later if these people who are on these drugs don't have the same health complications and problems? Well, that that, that argument, that medical scientific argument is very sound to me and we've we've long uh, invoked that argument. But the the province, but Pharmacare doesn't buy it. Pharmacare is interested in cost and cost, I wouldn't say above all else, but cost trumps safety and benefits. So, um, you know, it's, I, I sympathize with the Minister of Finance, you know, balancing the budgets and everything. But we have to have, it, it should be doctors who are making the decisions about which drugs are best for patients, not, not, uh, not a bean counter. Right. Dr. Elliot, what is the process like for this then? So obviously this happens, right? New drugs come along, Pharmacare has to get updated, and these, these things take time. It's a process. What is that process like? Do you, like are these drugs in that process right now? Well, I, I, I've been on the warpath with Pharmacare. Actually, that's, you know, I, I want to work with them, but because they're not working with me, we've had to up the stakes. The province has uh, indicated that the conditions, the guidelines will be revisited. We haven't been given a date. I have been invited to sit on the panel, so I look forward to that. But in the meantime, I have hundreds of patients who are being denied these drugs. So, uh, yes, it's a problem. I, you know, I have to fill in a form. I invoke the risk of severe low sugar. The province writes back and says, no, Dr. Elliot, give us more information. I said, well, give us patient-specific information. And I say, well, there's no patient I would give it to. It's a dangerous drug. You know, no matter how, how low the risk, it's too high for my patient. But, but there's a pharmacist in Pharmacare who says, no, Dr. Elliot, that's wrong. We deny access to this drug. So, you know, I, I, I'm sure that the changes will come about with time, but it is frustrating, and, and uh, it's great you having me on, on your show to uh, to talk about it. Yeah, well, keep us up to date. I know there's probably a lot of people out there who would like to hear more about this, Dr. Elliott, so thanks for your time this morning. My pleasure, Simon. That's Dr. Tom Elliott, a Vancouver endocrinologist who specializes as well in diabetes research, talking about his desire to make sure his patients have two potentially life-saving, life-altering uh, diabetes drugs that Pharmacare makes it very challenging for him to give to his patients. Now, if you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. The thing is, you've probably seen the ads for these drugs, right? They are heavily, heavily advertised in the United States in particular. So yeah, you wonder what is the process like for Pharmacare to update these things? We'll follow up on that for sure. This is Mornings with Simi. What is that you're listening to? Well, that is the music from the Super Chefs of the Universe. So apropos. They're doing something great, by the way, with the Surrey Christmas Bureau. Here to tell us all about it is our contributor, Raji Sohal. Good morning, Raji. 
Good morning, Simi. Yeah, Super Chef's Cookery for Kids is this awesome program that uh, is doing a bunch of really cool things, one of which is supplying the Surrey Christmas Bureau with a very special kids baking kit. It contains uh, things like a gingerbread kit, although they're calling it a, a gingerbread mansion, I believe, this year, uh, vouchers to buy grocery, a Super Chef's holiday cookbook, lots of goodies there. And instead of just handing the kits over to the Christmas Bureau, they wanted to uh, make it more interesting, get kids more involved. And so what they did is they went to a bunch of select schools, elementary schools in Surrey, including Green Timbers. <coughs> ahem, ahem. little shout out to them because that's where I went to school. <laughs> and the kids uh, got to decorate the boxes before they went on to the Surrey Christmas Bureau. And this is a project that Dr. Greg Chang does every year. He's the the creator of the whole Super Chefs universe. And he says it's really important to him to get kids involved with like any step of food prep that you possibly can. And I say, I say doctor because actually Dr. Greg is a dentist. He's a dentist, but cooking and teaching children about how to make nutritious food, that is his real passion. And he's making a difference in Surrey where he runs his dental practice. So the Surrey Christmas Bureau program is going on right now. Anyone listening to this can go over to their website, make a donation. And some of the kids who are, are decorating these kits have actually participated in the Super Chef's summer camp program. And Dr. Greg basically gets federal funding uh, every year to hire university students. Uh, often they're in dietetics or they're healthcare students. And they just basically want to create a better start for kids. Here's Dr. Greg talking about the colorful Christmas kits that the kids are preparing for the Christmas Bureau. They did an incredible job. Well, the kits are, they're just regular brown boxes, but they're all decorated out. Um, by the kids in different holiday um, colorings and paintings. They, they look wonderful. The family gets the gingerbread mansion and we encourage them to put together their creation and then email them in to us so we can see what they've created. That enters them into a draw, random draw, to win a $250 subscription to HelloFresh because we still like to encourage families to during the holidays to, you know, cook together and eat together, as well as some electric toothbrush kits, because I'm a dentist. So I want to encourage them to, to brush well during the holiday season as well. Okay, let's talk about that for a second. You're a dentist. How did you get interested in kids eating well? So my mom used to teach all the neighborhood Jewish uh, mothers how to cook Chinese food. So I'd come home from school, and there'd be tables of these mothers learning how to cook Chinese food. So um, cooking was really, um, it was a big part of growing up for me. So after dental school, I went and continued to do some professional training in uh, the culinary industry. But when I was in my dental practice, and I did a lot of kids, I noticed that a lot of kids that had um, carious lesions, decay, it wasn't just because they weren't brushing their teeth, it was because they weren't sure what to eat and how to eat healthy. And the parents didn't know either. They would, you know, have a lot of sugar or sugary drinks and they didn't realize that um, it could really compromise the teeth. So I created a program called Super Chefs. I said, I got to create a program to teach them how to cook healthy and teach them a little bit about nutrition, but also get them into sports because that's the whole 
um, third dimension in you know preventing obesity. And um, that's what we did. So created a camp, took some kids from Britannia Community Center, and uh, went out to Zajac Ranch and had our first camp. And one of the kids, um, we taught him how to cook, taught him about nutrition, got him into sports. He lost 40 pounds in one year. So that was 14 years ago. So, so we're coming up to our 15th year um, in Surrey, providing free cooking camps in the Surrey School District. The, the results just speak for themselves. They're just, um, you know, trying to promote a healthier generation of kids in Surrey. Raj, there's lots of information out there, but you got to make it fun for the kids. And that's what's really important for our Super Chefs program. I created the program with a guy from Sesame Street. He, he told me, come to New York and we'll write this together, but you got to get the kids to have fun. Once you have the kids having fun, then you can bring in the ABCs, one, two, threes, and they'll soak it all up. So at Super Chefs, we're all about fun. We, the first Thing they do is they we make crepes but they they flip them as high as they can so they're really <laughs> engaged and then um we we do fresh pasta my son was making this long noodle at, and he he rolled out a 20-foot noodle and um chef yasas from the white house saw this and he says kids let's parade this noodle this we parade this 20-foot noodle on the floor of the new york times travel show and that created the tradition of whenever we teach fresh pasta at the end of the class, the kids always have a long noodle contest where they see how long a noodle they can they can make. I need to make more contests around food you for do. my kids. You really <laughs> I used to do that when the kids were little, give them each like their own station. And yes. then we would make cookies or do whatever, but like two bowls, two spatulas, two like everything uh, just to get them involved because kids love getting involved in the kitchen. They do. Kids love prepping food. What I find they don't like is rules around mess. So if you just embrace True. the mess, let the flour fly. Yes, it will take you ages to clean it up, but it's worth getting messy. And it's, I think, what got one of my kids, She's she's got a sweet tooth. She doesn't want to eat her veggies. And what made the difference to get her to eat her veggies was having her prepare her food. Now she's into broccoli. There you go. See, that's what I love this program, though. So uh, this is great because it also benefits the Christmas Bureau, which we know at this time of year, they need all the help that they can get. Yeah, Sammy, thanks for mentioning that because they need tons of help and they've got actually a Christmas wish list up on the Surrey Christmas Bureau website. So you can go there and you can see what kids need at different ages and you can help shop and make a nice Christmas for those families. You can also adopt a family through their website. Oh, see, that is such a good idea for this time of year. All right. Thank you for that, Raji. Thanks, Simi. To Raji Sohal there. Yes, there's so many different ways that you can get involved this time of year to help people out. Your local Christmas Bureau is a great way to do that. Adopting a family is actually, it's a lot of fun to get your kids involved in that too. Do some shopping, groceries, presents, you name it. Uh, it's, it's really great to get involved that way. So check out their website for more information. This is Mornings with Simi. A lot of Canadians, I think American Thanksgiving means one thing. Doesn't mean turkey for us. It means shopping for a lot of people because it means that Black Friday deals are just around the corner. Now, they've already started popping up. I've certainly been inundated with different emails, you know, telling me about how much of a discount, you know, stores are giving out right now. So maybe you're planning to do this. Maybe you're planning to get your shopping underway in earnest tomorrow. All we know, as always, there will be probably some pretty busy shopping areas to talk about. But 
How much of a discount are we talking about here? Is it worth people's while to get out there and shop in person this year? And are retailers really expecting that? Well, joining us now is David Ian Gray, marketing expert for Dig360. Good morning. Hi, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Is this like a very busy time of year for you because you're checking out all the retail trends? Yeah, and it's it's such a uh, November and December for many, many retailers is a, sort of a make or break 60 day period. And so it's um, sort of very high alert <laughs> time of year for us to be watching what's going on. Yeah, what are you seeing out there right now? Are retailers really counting <laughs> on Black Friday this year? Well, it's, it's actually really interesting because the um, a, a lot of the story in September, October was, and a lot of this was coming out of the U.S., was that retail was sitting on excess inventory after having a lack of inventory a year before. And the fear of that was that it would have to get blown out and there'd be good for consumers, deep discounts, but not necessarily good for the business. We're, I, I've been watching... Um, sort of the the advertising and promotions here in Canada and Black Friday is always Black Friday months now, right? We know yeah. that. We, the, you see the deals starting in the first week of November, but the deals have been sort of at 20%, but not on all uh, items, you know, up to 20% off, uh, that sort of thing. So it suggests to me that in Canada, at least, a lot of our, our promotionally minded retailers have actually got their inventory in check. Um so whether there's going to be some some big big deals, uh, sort of overnight tonight and tomorrow, and then through Cyber Monday, um, I, I don't I don't see it happening the way I might have thought a month ago. Oh, interesting. Okay, so the bigger the discount, you think the more desperate perhaps that retailer is to unload inventory. Yeah, and we've we've tracked um, Black Friday since 2010 uh, through surveys right after the, uh, the you know the weekend. And what we've seen from consumers, uh, even before the pandemic, back 2018, 2019, was that the deals really have been more hype than, than substance, predominantly. And um, and again, you know, from the business point of view, they don't want to be doing 70% off on something they could sell closer to, uh, you know, manufacturer's retail price. So you, you tend to get the door crashers, if anything, but there might be 10 of them in a store. Um, when you see massive blowouts across the board, it usually means someone's in trouble with way too much inventory. Okay, something to keep an eye on. But I noticed as well what you pointed out there, David, and that is Canadian retailers in some cases aren't offering the same deals as if I checked their American website and the deals are much greater. Yeah, I think it's a different situation right now in the States. I think we're seeing a little bit of a, a divide. The story of inventory um, is is a tough one in Canada. A lot of our retail is not publicly traded, you know, as a business, and it's something that's going to be closely guarded. It, it's a very competitive world out there, so we can only sort of speculate as we see things emerge. But I think that part uh, that part looks okay. Obviously, um, we've now conditioned all parts, the consumer and the retailer, that there has and the brands that there has to be something going on starting in November, right through into Boxing Week. So, we, we, you know, we're going to see just a rolling series of these uh, of sales, and they'll continue on past this weekend. 
All right. Well, that's good. I know because some people kind of wait for this time of year. And I think people's budgets are really tight as well right now, David. So they want they need these deals to get their Christmas shopping done. Is that is that good news for retailers? Well, it's not. And, and that's a real, there's a really good point you're making there that, um, you know, sort of the story of this year has been a combination of uh, uh, really depressed consumer enthusiasm for, for shopping along with this inflation story. So, um, you know, we're, we're seeing households, I think, in, in a profound way, um, really thinking about budgeting and, and prioritizing what they're buying. Whereas a few years back, you know, people would say they would do that, but they were a little bit lax around it. And if they got excited about seeing something on sale, they, they jump on it. I think they're, they're being more selective. And I think it's a bit of a waiting game. You know, if they're not seeing the deal they want, they're going to wait a little, little longer, hoping it does come on, on sale. Uh, so do you think the malls are going to be busy tomorrow? Yeah. Uh, the one thing we found through the pandemic, and this may surprise people, but um, November uh, 2020 uh, was a huge gain over 2019. It was, it was up almost 20%. You think, well, how could that be? It was the pandemic. But what happened was people were not shopping in stores. We had the lockdowns going on. And in around October, November that year, uh, we, it was the first effort to kind of relax things and let people get back into uh, some limited shopping environments. And people just surged in. I, I, and I think the truth of the matter is, as shoppers, we're shopping online, but we're also shopping in stores. And stores do play a role especially when we want to try things on or look, just get ideas. Uh, so we're seeing both. And if one of them, and, and if stores are not available to us, we certainly saw in the pandemic that uh, shopping, um, you know, spending was down. So uh, I, I, it's, it's going to be a busy day. Uh, so are the Saturdays leading up to Christmas. So will, you know, Boxing Day be busy. Uh, but Black Friday, definitely, it'll be busy tomorrow in the major malls. Any advice for people, and David, what should we look for so that we know we're getting a good deal? Are there any signs that retailers put out there that we should be looking for? Well, the, 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 little, the, the, the little asterisk is always, you know, um, when it's 20, 30, 40% is great. But if it says up to 40%, what often happens when you start digging into it is there's a few items that are at 40 and others are at 10 or 20. Um, you know, I think at the end of the day, if, if there's something you want to get and it's it's a in-demand brand like Lululemon or Apple, you're not going to see big, big deals. And your savvy shoppers know that. But on a bigger ticket item, even 10% off could make make or break uh, uh, a decision. So I think you're going to see that. I don't think we're going to have the stockouts that we saw a year ago. But that, again, as always, every year is, is a bit of a problem. If you're a pretty typical size in clothing or if it's a hot item, um, there is some pressure to get in early if you really feel you have to have it. Right. So read the fine print carefully. I think people are pretty careful shoppers that way, aren't they? Like people aren't just going to go crazy just because it's on sale. I've We do a lot of shopper research, and I, I've always been sort of blown away by how incredibly savvy uh, most shoppers are when it's about things that they care about, you know, and, uh, and, uh, they're, uh, 
They are. They do their research. Obviously, the thing online isn't just about buying online. It, it, the biggest change with online was the ability just to do all kinds of research from your home before even stepping foot in a store. So, um, yep, shoppers are savvy. Uh, retailers want them to come in. They're going to try and entice them. They don't want to blow everything out all at once too early uh, because that could hurt their bottom line going into January. Right. Pace yourself. That's the word. All right, David, thanks for that. You're welcome. Appreciate it. David Ian Gray is a marketing expert with Dig360, and they do a lot of shopper research, as you heard there. So they are very closely watching our behavior or consumer behavior when it comes to Black Friday tomorrow. You know what we're going to be watching is, well, how busy the malls are, essentially. Of course, downtown here in Pacific Center, we are just above that, so we'll be checking that out. But you know what happens out of places like MacArthur Glen, which is that outlet mall out by YVR there. It's probably going to be jam-packed tomorrow. So, by the way, if you have a flight or if you know somebody who has a flight tomorrow, uh, make sure you leave extra time because there's always traffic tie-ups these days at on Black Friday right around the airport there. So we'll be talking about all this tomorrow morning, but if you want to weigh in about great deals or how you're approaching it or what you're going to do, please do. Simi at cknw.com.